I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer and historian. Uh, I don't know why we had the picture of last week's guest up there, Mary Gregg. I apologize to our guest today. Um, uh, but uh, we will fix that before this actually gets to air uh, after. Uh, today we have a fantastic guest. He's one of the first, probably the first person uh, without a doubt that I befriended at the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He was extremely kind and and uh, his name is Clay Moyle. He's an internationally well-known, admired and respected uh, boxing writer. And he's written some magnificent boxing books. He wrote a book on the wonderful Billy Miskey and that book got Billy Miskey into the National International Boxing Hall of Fame. He also wrote a wonderful book on Tony Zale, the great Tony Zale, the Man of Steel, and my favorite book, and I was just absolute, I was in tears seeing this in the store, was on this man, the Canadian. It took an American to bring this man back to life, Sam Langford. And this is a great book, and it's Boxing's Greatest Uncrowned Champion. And that's what Sam Langford is known as, Boxing's Greatest Uncrowned Champion. And if not for the racism of the time, he would have been a world champion. And we are pleased as punch to welcome someone who's more familiar with Canada than most Canadians themselves, Mr. Clay Moyle. Thanks, Lou. It's good to be here. Oh, thank you. It's great to have you. I was thinking the other day if you were going to change your name from Cassius Clay Moyle to Muhammad Ali Moyle, but I, I guess you, you stuck. That's a nah, okay. I've been using this one for uh, you know long enough. I think I'll keep it. It's a great name. I never like I never liked my name because Lou rhymes with so many things. And <laughs> all my first cousins have the same name because they're named after my grandfather. So what made you what what was the first thing that when you came across Lang for the first time that you thought, I gotta do something on this guy? What grabbed you? Yeah, that's um you know, I really didn't know much about Sam for the longest time and heard the name, but yeah, you know, once I started uh reading materials about him and and other fighters, um, you know, I just came across a wealth of information about his fighting prowess and uh um he was such a character. I mean, he, the guy was a real character and had a great sense of humor. Um, but yeah, it was all the accolades I was coming across from his counterparts, you know, these other great fighters who were, uh, you know, just singing his praises, you know, the more I read about him and learned about him, the more intrigued I became. And, and yeah, at some point I just was like, how come nobody's ever written a book about this guy? He's phenomenal. He was phenomenal. Um, and, it, and it was obviously such a shame that uh, so many people don't know how great he was as a boxer. Um, so, you know, I just decided that uh, I'd always kind of wanted to write a book. And I thought I would pick him as my first subject, of course, not realizing what a big job uh, I'd taken on. Because, as you know, he, he had over 300 professional fights and a 24-year ring career. So, um there was a lot of ground to cover and a tremendous amount of research, but that's, that's really why I selected him as a subject was I just became fascinated with him. You know, he, he's, I, I love that you mentioned, cause I wanted to bring it up as his sense of humor. Um, you sent me a lot of your notes at, cause I was asking you certain questions before and there's so many fantastic, I mean, the book could have been six to 800 pages as far as I'm concerned. And that it wouldn't have been enough because, there's so many fantastic stories about him and so many hysterically funny quotes that he said that made sense. For instance, you were telling me 
about about when they touch gloves like in right what, what was that story again well there's one where i mean it, it sounded like it happened on more than one occasion where he went out um you know traditionally many boxers before the final round would touch gloves before the round commences and uh sam went out with to do and he reached out to touch gloves with a fighter you know and it was a earlier in in the fight and, and you know the fighter had a, got a very confused look on his face and said sam this is not the last round and of course sam said well it is for you <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then knocked him out of course that round but he had that kind of ability um and talent he was he was you know you obviously know very much about muhammad ali as a result of your friendship great friendship with uh angelo dundee and um you know, Muhammad became pretty famous for early in his career, naming the round he was going to take a fighter out. Well, you know, Sam was very similar in that regard and uh, essentially was doing that, what, 100 years earlier? Mm -hmm. Not 100, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, he, but long before. And right. there was also, you, you had great stories about how one writer called him yellow and I think it was in England, and he positioned a fighter right above the writer and then just knocked him into his lap. Oh, yeah, that was actually uh, that was actually against Jim Flynn. Right. Um, and it did occur in the States. It was uh, and there was that was one one of only two losses Sam cover, uh, incurred over a four or five year period where I think he was really at his peak. And uh, Flynn had, you know, had uh, upset him in a match and then you know, went about bragging about it. Um, and this writer uh, was very uncomplimentary towards Sam uh, as the rematch approached. And of course it uh, caused a lot of ire on the part of Sam. And um, when that fight occurred, as you said, at some point during the, the match, he, he maneuvered Flynn over towards where that writer, sports writer was sitting near ringside, got into a clinch and directed some comments towards the sports writer to the effect that uh here i, br I, I brought I'm, I'm about to bring your champion to uh to you and you know flynn didn't know who he was talking to you know kind of glanced over and next thing you knew sam knocked him out and uh you know it was in the first round you know so he he basically wow. decided he was going to put a very bring a very quick ending to this fight and uh he, again he had the ability to do that when he wanted to, um, he, he carried a lot of fighters, right? Um, he, he said he was never involved in an, in a fix, uh, throwing a fight, but, um, you know, he would carry a number of fighters. Uh, there was a great story in a 1920 match a, a Memphis promoter, uh, had a good crowd that particular day. And he said that Sam came up to him before the fight and, uh, said, I noticed you got a good crowd out here. What, what did you want me to do? Did you want me to take him out early? You want me to carry him a few rounds? You know, the, that particular promoter, you know, wasn't in the business of, uh, operating that way and said, well, you know, Sam, you just fight the way you normally fight. But honestly, that was how he fought in many cases. He was, yeah. he was, he was trying to, you know, do the, you know, do the wishes of the promoter. So, um, yeah, interesting. It, i saw another comment by Abe Hadell, Abe Hadell, the great fighter who said that, uh, you know, there's, we'll never know how many fighters that, uh, that Sam carried during his career. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The only time I ever saw Ray Arcel get angry was when someone asked him, I understand that Sam Langford and, and Benny Leonard and other guys 
uh, had fixed fights. And he said, not in the way you think so. Right. No one was, like, as you just said, no one was planned to lose. But he said Sam Langford's skill was so supreme, you know, even if a gun to their head, guys just wouldn't get in the ring with him. So mm-hmm. he had the promise, as you said, to carry carry them for eight or nine rounds. And he said the only mistake some of these fighters made was they broke the deal. Right. And you have right. that story you told me about that one guy. Uh, it was in the papers you sent me. The the guy who agreed, where Joe Woodman, his manager, said, he'll go easy on you. He'll let it go. And then this guy started to take punches with him. And Woodman or Sam said, deal's off. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and that happened with Ketchell too, didn't it? I, I'm sorry? Didn't that happen with Ketchell as well? Because Ketchell was notorious for not living up to deal. Yeah, I don't know that there was an agreement between the two men per se in that particular fight. I mean, the story is that, um, you know, that there was a more, much more longer lucrative match out on the West Coast that would take place if Sam would agree to, um, you know, to carry him in this particular fight. Now, um, you know, I think what Sam came to realize in that six short six round fight with Ketchell was that um, carrying Ketchell was not uh, necessarily as easy as it was to carry some other man. He, he had a real um, he was very complimentary uh, concerning Ketchell and his level of aggressiveness. And, you know, he found it, he had to he had to work a lot harder to um, to avoid uh taking him out, you know? So, I mean, cause he had to, at some point he decided that he had to defend himself and he had to come more aggressive than he himself had planned in order to uh, survive that six round bout. But yeah, it was a real shame that, uh, you know, it was, I think it was a matter of months later that uh, Ketchell of course was assassinated mm-hmm. and that, that the longer fight never came to fruition. It would have been very interesting to, um, to see what the results would have been from that bout. Most of those in many of those, the majority of those in in attendance felt that Sam had carried Ketchell, but you know there were others who didn't see it that way, of course. And well, I you know. I read, I mean, I've seen where they said that's been listed as a win for for uh, Langford or as a draw, but exactly what you said, where people mm-hmm. said that Langford won, and that the next fight was supposed to be a title fight, and right. then Ketchell got assassinated, and and that there went Sam's chances, but also Ketchell was good friends of Langford and with Jack Johnson. He wasn't, he was unlike a lot of the fighters back then. He was not bigoted or racist at all in any way. Right. Yeah. Ketchell's honestly a guy that would be interesting to see someone take on a full length biography about as well. I mean, think about it. I think Nat Fleischer did a very short biography about him, but yeah, I, he would be a task taken on uh, much like Langford. That that would be a lot of work, many years of uh, effort to to do a decent job of it. But that would be well worth the time for someone to do. Yeah, it's it's interesting when I when I would read about uh, Ketchell that he would go to whorehouses of Jack Johnson, and he was good friends with Sam. And, and it's it's fascinating that although there were a lot of racist fighters back then, you get guys like Terry McGovern, who was actually good friends of George Dixon and Joe Gans and other black fighters. There were exceptions to the rule back then. Right. Yeah, there definitely were. Of course, the, the flip side of that was you'd had a number of white fighters that just flat out refused to fight right. blacks, of course. And and and, and in the and in, in the states, there was there were many states at the time where um, bouts between mixed races was prohibited. Right. And it, it, it just kills me that 
I remember at the Hall of Fame years ago when we were there that I was sitting in on a seminar and I, I said, how can you, how can anyone accept John L. Sullivan as the first gloved heavyweight champ? He should be the first gloved white heavyweight champ because Peter Jackson was the best heavyweight in the world. At that time, right. Johnson wouldn't fight him. I mean, this is almost like revisionist history. Right. Yeah, you remember, um, I think it was Bob Fitzsimmons uh, who ultimately be, did become a heavyweight champion. And he always referred to um, Peter Jackson as the, the granddaddy of them all. <laughs> right. Right. And we know Sullivan wouldn't fight the Canadian George Godfrey and he wouldn't fight uh, Jackson. Right. And then ironically, when Jack Johnson, now, here's something I want to ask you. So Jack Johnson, apparently, did he make this deal with the National Sporting Club in England to fight Langford if he beats Burns? Yeah, I believe he did. I mean, they. Um, the, the story is that uh, you know Jack Johnson, of course, was chasing Tommy Burns all around the world in an effort to try to get a fight with him for the title. And uh, when he moved on, when Burns moved on from England to Australia, you know Johnson was getting short on cash, supposedly, and um, the National Sporting Club stepped in and made an agreement with him. They would fund his travel to Australia in exchange for this agreement that should he win the title. He returned to England for a first title offense against Sam Langford, who they already knew very well because Sam had been there uh, a year prior and had four matches over there. And they were very impressed with Sam Langford. So they wanted to have the two men fight before their club in England. And uh, yeah, there was a signed agreement. And, um, you know, after Johnson won the title, he reneged on the deal and uh, he felt like the money wasn't sufficient um refused to honor it and uh he claimed that it was his manager that had signed the agreement the national supporting club national sporting club then produced the agreement with johnson's signature you know but it no matter he you know johnson of course moved back to the united states in pursuit of uh more lucrative opportunities and and, and then uh as a result um the national sporting club invited uh, Sam to come over and instead fight for what they termed the world heavyweight title in England against their champion, Iron Hag. And uh, Sam, of course, defeated him in the fourth round, knocked him out. And uh, they, they, in fact, proclaimed Sam as the heavyweight champion of the world at the time. But yeah, long story short, um, I believe that Johnson signed that agreement to, uh, to fight him and reneged on it. But Johnson was known for that. I mean, people, a lot of people don't realize Johnson was, as Joe Frazier would say, was a scambuga, a rogue. <laughs> he, he, he skipped out on hotel bills. He, he's, he would get money for a vaudeville tour and do three nights and then leave. And from, from when I read about him in, in, in the book, Unforgivable uh, Blackness, they said that um, he was his own worst enemy. I mean, people didn't want to help him. People were saying to Johnson, yeah, you know, I would have helped you with that, but I signed you for 30 grand and you did four shows and left and you never right. paid me the extra money. So why would I help you? Yeah, Sam was a much more likable figure than than Johnson, for sure. I know that the famous promoter over in Australia at the time, um, McIntosh. Hugh McIntosh specifically mentioned that he, you know, he said that he was always at odds with uh, with Johnson, but um, and instead got along you know famously with sam found him very humorous with a droll whimsical sense of humor and uh 
very, very easy to work with. But yeah, Johnson, I, I think Johnson clearly ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, and, you know, in fairness to him, uh, like all blacks at the time, he suffered a tremendous amount of discrimination. Um, so I think he carried a big chip on his shoulder as a result of that. And Yeah. I, and you can't blame him for that because no. the, I mean, that went up right, you know, you look at a guy like Sonny Liston, who the mobster Mo Dalitz used the N-word with him when every time he spoke to him. And when Liston wanted to hurt him, he just said, I'm a mobster. You hurt me, I'd kill you and your wife. Nothing you can do about it. And and just right. it, it it's heartbreaking when you see how Johnson and Langford and Gans and Dixon and all the great African-American, African-Canadian and African-Australian fighters and British fighters were treated like dirt. It's 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 unconscionable. It's evil, right? You know, so that's just a wind opening my door. So it's <laughs> it's it's unbelievable that and still, what upsets me, Clay, is that there are people here on this planet today that'll say, "Well, that's the way it was back then." It doesn't make it acceptable. No, absolutely not. Racism. No, it's terrible. Wrong. Yeah, it's just terrible. And uh, you know, one of the stories I love that you had about. Um, uh, Sam Langford. I mean, there were so many, you know, uh, in the book, but it was great the way you spoke about his family, about his, his, and the, the wonderful pictures of his extended family and his daughter. And in fact, you also mentioned that probably most people didn't realize and still don't that Jack Johnson drew the color line against Langford because he beat him the first time, but he could see how good he was going to become. Yeah, he absolutely did uh, draw the color line when it came to Sam and, and many of the other leading black contenders like Joe Jeanette and Sam McVeigh. He, he defeated all three of these fellows before, but but clearly uh, for a number of years, they were the leading contenders for his title and, and didn't receive a shot. I think I think Sam, uh, more so than any of the others, was, was robbed of that opportunity. You know, I was looking through the notes in preparation for this as a reminder uh, to myself of this call again and you know i just you know recall the remembered it was reminded that uh he was sam at one time or another was the heavyweight champion of the world in five different countries england france australia canada and finally mexico in addition to winning the colored heavyweight championship uh, a number of different times um i think you know the bottom line lewis I, again i was looking at notes and i was reminded that uh you know, the Australian promoter McIntosh uh, tried very hard to get Johnson to come over and, and fight Sam. And, um, you know, he, he said that finally at one point, Johnson just said to him, you know, hey, you give it up. I'm, you know, I'm basically, I'm never going to, we're never going to fight. You, you know, he's, he is uh, probably, you know, just the most dangerous. He's got a chance to win against any heavyweight in the world. There's, you know, basically there's too many other easy money white men for me to fight than risk the title against him. Right. And that's the way you boxing know. is. Yeah. And he told this, he said the same thing to Duke Mullins, who is the trainer over in uh, Australia, who trained both himself for his fight with Burns and then later mm -hmm. trained Sam when he was over there for a year and a half. You right. know, he said that uh, anytime that uh, Sam's name would come up, Johnson very quickly tried to change the subject. And, uh, you know, said the same thing to Mullins. Basically, you know, there's, he, he's got a chance to win against anybody. 
you know, and he didn't, he didn't exclude himself. Not to say that Johnson might not have beaten him anyway, because, you know, he's, he was a very skilled and bigger defensive fighter. I think he would have fought a very cautious fight against Sam, tried to, you know, avoid taking a big blow, but um, he knew Sam was the most dangerous fighter out there for him during that period of time. Didn't want to mess with him. Right. And I, I, in your book, you were mentioning how often like Joe Woodman, Langford's manager, who really loved him. Often the story of the fight was dependent on which manager got to the telephone quickest to call the newspaper. And Woodman said years later that in fact, Sam was dominated by was really beating right. Johnson, although he put out an alternative story. Yeah, the only time they fought, obviously, was in April of 1906. And, you know, Sam, that was his second heavyweight fight in his career at that particular point in time. Or third, rather. I'm sorry. He had just defeated uh, Joe Jeanette after they had fought twice. So, um, yeah, Johnson, by all reports, won the fight easily. But um, he gained a, a, a healthy respect for Sam and his power. And uh, in fact, in the 1940s, he referred to Sam as the toughest little son of a bitch that ever lived. You know, so he 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 didn't want to fight him again. I think that's the bottom line. I mean, and again, you know, being a businessman, it was he was he was correct. I mean, there, he could make just as much money or more fighting easier white men than he could taking on Sam at that particular point in time. Right. Angel Dundee used to tell me that the rule of thumb was always least amount of risks for the most amount of money. Right and doesn't make for great fights all the time but 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 Langford didn't like Johnson did he I mean he no he didn't like him at all I you know I think he thought he I think he viewed him as a just a braggart and and of course he was very angry at him for for not giving him an opportunity um right you know there's a there was a great story about the there was a there was a benefit that uh, took place uh, shortly after the San Francisco earthquake and uh you know, Sam was asked to appear in this benefit to raise money for the San Franciscans. And according to this reports, he, he agreed, but on one condition, he wanted to be matched in this exhibition against with Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was appearing, of course. And, um, you know, in that, I guess Johnson, when he was, when he was introduced, you know, he was, he was awarded with some kind of a watch and he, you know, he just made, he was, he was very full of himself. You know, Sam was, was just disgusted with him and you know he always he just did not like his manners and um when that when that exhibition took place this is sam's report of the story that uh what view of what took place he said he got he walked up to johnson and said this wasn't going to be any exhibition and that it just they proceeded to brawl and knock down some background scenery and you know he he really played it up in terms of what took place now i searched and searched to see if i could find any reports that would back that up, but uh, I did not come across anything of that sort. So I, I don't know if, if anything to that degree took place. But yeah, clearly Sam uh, didn't like the man. But you know, he, he was complimentary in terms of his his skills later on. You know, right. he, was, he had he had a respect for for Johnson's ability as a fighter. Yeah, that came out. You know, I, I don't like him personally, but he he could really fight. Right. And it this shows you that you were talking about a potential fight between them. I mean, Angela always said to me, there's no ifs in boxing. Don't get, don't go on these Facebook pages. What happens if Jack Johnson faces Joe Frazier? He said, it's a stupid question. Right. Two different eras, two kinds of fighting, and there's no answer. You can only go by if they actually fought. So Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I was thinking about that today, Lou. Um, 
like you say, you go on the internet, you see all these debates between these uh, so-called historians and other fans about what would happen if these certain fighters fought one another. I've always put much more uh, weight on the opinion of men who fought in the ring against these men at that particular point in time. Like, you know, Joe Jeanette, for example. Um, Joe Jeanette fought both Sam and Jack Johnson. He fought Jack Johnson on more than one occasion uh, prior to Johnson becoming the champion. And, uh, you know, Jeanette felt that uh, once Sam got a little more ring experience and gained some weight, that uh, he fought, he felt that uh, Sam would have defeated Johnson any time that Johnson gave him a fight, gave him an opportunity. You know, that's... Yeah, you have to trust what he says. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and Gunboat Smith. Gunboat Smith fought both both men. He fought Jack Johnson. He sparred with him, and uh, and he fought Sam twice. He felt he felt that Sam would defeat him as well. Um, and he and he also said, you know, he said that both he Gunboat Smith fought both Dempsey and Jack Johnson in addition to Sam, and he said that Sam was the harder hitter of the three by far. He said that wow. he said basically that Sam ruined him the last time that the two fought. Sam ruined a lot of guys. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> you know, a lot of guys were never the same in or out of the ring after uh, after uh, they they fought Sam. It's interesting you say that because I use your name online a lot when people bring Langford up, and I always say you should read Clay's book. But I also say if that's not in Clay's book, then I don't buy it. <laughs> You know, if, he, if if Clay didn't say that, then you can't tell me that, you know, he fought this guy or that guy if there's no record of it. If Clay doesn't have it, it doesn't exist. So, yeah. Well, you know, Lou, you, you mentioned earlier um, about uh, the book be potentially being longer. There was a period <laughs> that my first draft of that book was was over 150,000 words. Wow. Um, and I ultimately edited it down to about 113,000 after I learned from different publishers that they considered the sweet spot, the sweet spot between eighty thousand to one hundred ten thousand. Right. You know, there's there's so many more books that about boxers that we see today that are uh, self published or um, through smaller publishers that are five or six hundred or more pages. You you you, could, you couldn't get away with that uh, back in the day when you could only get a book published by a mainstream publisher. No one was going to publish something that long. Well, you know when when I sent my book um and i had problems with with um with uh amazon so uh, colleen acock who we both know said send it to my friend at right Ireland, and he said i like it and i said thank you but he said you've written like four books <laughs> he said it's 223 page thousand pages he said he's very polite he said with all due respect and politeness are you out of your mind he said <laughs> A hundred thousand is the most. And he said, I, I like what you've written, but he said in your pages, you, you'll mention, for instance, the Wolgas Rivers fight, and you mention how Jack Welsh cheated. And I'll say, right. He said, but you mentioned it nine times. It isn't <laughs> necessary. You mention it once, that's it. Take the other nine out. And I went, that's a good point. But he gave me such yeah. great direction. But I knew what to look for when going through it and cutting off. Well, you know that you know Nat Fleischer was so prolific when it came to writing books. I mean, he, he knocked out so many of them. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that um, 
you know, 19, early 1960s or mid 60s, there was an article in Sports Illustrated about all these unpublished manuscripts that he had in his vault in his office at Madison Square Garden. And he referred to those and miraculously, I, I came to acquire those in, in around 2013. That's and cool. uh, there was there was a, like, for example, a uh, a work that was unpublished by him, the history of uh, prize fighting in New York and, and another one about Chicago. And those were just massive. I mean, they were typewritten pages, five or 600 pages. Uh, I don't know. It ha you know, they would have been well over, like you said, the, you'd, today you'd have to do three or four books to get him published. So he could not find as well known as he was and as expected as he was as a writer in his time period. He could not find anybody to publish them, so they they sat in this safe forever. Uh, I, I ended up selling those to the University of Notre Dame, but um, so they're well cared for now. But yeah, I was blown well, away by. They're well cared for when you had them because no one. <laughs> well, no I one think they'll be cared for better there than than, yeah, than here. No one respected it more and loved it more than you did, and 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 knew about it and knew and you know appreciated what he was doing more than you did. I, I don't I don't know where the man found the time. To, to write so many material on a sitting on an old, old typewriter too. Yeah. He must I not know. have slept. No, I mean, and then you, you read about him and he'll talk about, you know, the George Dixon fight with young Griffo. And I'm thinking, well, what were you four months old during that fight? I mean, how could you cover that fight, you know, in the 1890s and then right. be, be, you know, but you know, I, he obviously acquired and accumulated a lot of material, like from, um, like the old police, National Police Gazette, the Mirror of Life. So I mean, he had a tremendous supply of uh, recounts of those fights. But it, he was obviously relying upon that information to do that. Wasn't Ring originally the idea of Tex Rickard as an in-house magazine for his his promotional company? I don't know. I don't know where how that originated. Of course, I, all I know is that, it, you know, the first issue was in February of 1922, of course. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, you think about that as well. Um, uh, shoot, what is the uh, spacing out here? The The name of the periodical that uh, began in uh, 1910 in the England. The arena? What is it? What? Was it the arena? No, no. It's 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 got boxing in, in the name of the title. Okay. <laughs> Uh, in any case, I mean, yeah, basically they were 12 years before. So, I mean, there are some great periodicals out there that exist to this day, uh, back to 1910 and obviously well beyond that. And some of the older, like the, the illustrated record, there was a periodical titled the illustrated record. I came across some of those from like 1901 to 1904 and so forth. They were so brittle that, uh, you had to handle them very carefully to disintegrate in your hands, but so many tremendous uh, articles and huge line drawings of fighters and fights that were taking place. I mean, they're just, they were fantastic. Big too. I mean, you're talking about 11 by 14 and, you know, wow. big massive volumes of, of these periodicals. I know that I was trying to, I have it It's the first chapter in my book, Tony G helped me with it, the bare knuckle boxing historian. Um, I was looking for the first fight that I could verify was fixed in England. I think it goes back to 1772. So I was looking online and typing these things into Google and it mentioned that there was this newspaper. I don't know if it was the Eris Birmingham Gazette or something, but it had been publishing boxing stories from 1700 to 2000. 
And I had a guy's name, so I contacted the guy. He said, yeah, they just stopped. And I said, how do I get a hold of these fights? And he said, it's all online. And he gave me the information that went online. I was able to find it and look about this fight. But when I spoke to Tony G, he said, the problem with Pierce Egan and, and um, it wasn't anything negative about Pierce Egan, uh, but reports in that time weren't necessarily correct as to the dates often. And a lot of the reports were done well after the fight had taken place. So, you know what? So I did. I dug through a lot of microfilm, obviously, to do research for the Langford book and others. But um, one thing I did not uh, do was, and I would have liked to have gotten my hands on a lot more of the uh, accounts in in uh, African American newspapers of that time. I, and I've never really come across many of those. I don't know how difficult that is and I assume it's probably pretty difficult maybe not so much in the last couple of years I'd like to think that they're available now in microfilm mm -hmm. or in some other manner but uh, I wonder how many of those have actually survived uh, and exist but I would love to read accounts of fights um, like you know the Johnson Langford fight in 1906 in in Boston I, I dug up a number of local paper accounts of the fight but you know, I'm sure there were there were accounts in some uh, some black newspapers of the time too, but I, I wasn't able to find any of those. It would have been very interesting to read those. I know in reading recent baseball books, there are uh, quotes from black-owned newspapers uh, from the 40s and 30s and 20s. So, I mean, it exists. I just don't know how to go about finding it. Right. You know, so it's difficult. Uh, you're luckier in the sense that you're in the States. You know, when I called to try to access Hank Kaplan's boxing archive at Brooklyn College, the woman said, we'll get you anything you want. You just have to be in person. Right. Said, it's too massive to put online. It just yeah. isn't possible. So that's sort of a, um, uh, a detriment. It's interesting with Langford because I, I read about him when I was a kid. And my father would talk about him. And when I spoke to Angelo, Angelo, uh, I don't know if Angelo met him. I know Chris knew him. Chris Dundee's brother knew yep. Langford well. And he said, Sam was always a gentleman. Right. Always had a smile and a funny joke for you. And there's that clip online, which you've seen, where he just has the eye surgery. Yep. And it's like a 35-second clip. But he's he just he had a smile that even today, when you look at it in your book, he has a great laugh. Great laugh. And that smile lights up the world. You know, and and and, and just such a, a magnificent person. You you wonder why. I mean, your book should be a movie. I mean, I can't think of a better topic for a movie. Well, Lou, I can tell you that um, there was a fellow that optioned the book, um, shoot, eight, nine years ago. Uh, I've become good friends with him now over the years and helped him with the outline um and give him some input uh, he's actually written a screenplay for it and uh, and then during covid we worked together on a pilot for uh, a possible series so he's got a he's got a pilot written and um outlined for episodes uh so you know he's he's been peddling this for now for the last six or seven years i'd say uh in an effort to try to get somebody interested in funding that project and, and you know he's been talking to a number of pretty well-known parties. Um, but yeah, so far it hasn't transpired. I, 
I think it would make for a very interesting movie and, and the screenplay that was developed, I think is very good. But yeah, who knows? <laughs> I you know, my, Both my parents were alive when my first two books were optioned. And I thought, well, geez, this would really be something if right. you know, one of these gets made into a movie. I'd love it for you. Know, my parents would love this. And now I'm just hoping that if it actually happens, I'm still here. <laughs> right. I, I spoke a friend of mine who's been a movie reviewer from Toronto, but he, he wrote for the L.A. Times and the Hollywood Reporter and Newsweek and different things. And um, I said to him, how do you? and became a screenwriter himself but i said how do you get stuff option you write something and it's good it's not you th whether you think it's good or not but other people have seen it and said that's great it should be a movie he said it's easier if you get a star attached and yeah he, he said that's why so many actors are aspiring writers because when they do a movie with someone you know you mention hey i have something you might be interested in he said if you get someone behind it and I've been trying to do the same thing with Jim Dundee about his father and their relationship yep. with Muhammad Ali vis-a-vis -vis the Nation of Islam and the Mafia and just a book, movie, documentary, and everyone's like, why? Yeah, I know. I, I personally, you know, obviously familiar with that effort. And I, I think that story would be very interesting right. and quite a bit different, obviously, than all of the other Ali movies and stories we've seen and heard. So, um, yeah, I wish him luck with that and, and you if you're going to be continuing involved with it because I think it would be, uh, I think it would do well. Well, I, I do too, but it's interesting. A, a friend of mine from grade school is an entertainment lawyer and he spoke, he said to me, sat down with me and said, well, there's good news and bad news. And I said, what's the good news? There's only two literary agents in Canada that handle sports projects. That's it. Well, you know what, Lou, I, there's something else I heard about Canada from the fellow who has the option on the Langford. And that's if, uh, you know, we thought at one point we thought, well, maybe we'd have a better chance of getting in some interest in Canada uh, for this story since Sam was uh, born in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I come to learn that, um, you know, to, to, to obtain funding for an effort like that in Canada, you, it has to be, I, I believe he said it had to be directed and produced uh, by or written by a Canadian party, something to that effect. Anyway, there was, there was some obstacles that made it uh, more difficult to, um, to accomplish that in Canada than I thought it necessarily would be. Yeah. It, it's, it, yeah, I've gone through the same thing in the States. Oh no. In Canada where, oh. where they said, yeah, we'll give you, I, like I said, my next book, I want it to be, we were talking about off there on, on, because uh, it's, it's a great theme on, George Godfrey and and George Budge Byers because their stories were a success. Byers retired or Godfrey retired wealthy, and then his family turned it into millions on his advice. He said, "Don't mm. sell the land, you know, rent off of it, but keep it." And so they made millions, and he saves his money and he worked for the railroad, and his family, both families, still have the money. It's a success story. Two African Americans whose families started in slavery who came from Prince Edward Island. But the time they were born, the 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 population of African Canadians there was infantismal. You know, it is today. So it was less then. Right. And once again, take it to a producer here. That's a great story. I know who to do it. And it gives me the name of a guy who just produced a documentary on Canadian TV on 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 uh, Buck O'Neill, the black baseball player. Yep. And Herb Carnegie first well-known black hockey player in Canada. 
And I spoke to the guy. He said, I loved it. I loved it. And I said, that's great. He said, but I don't, I work for the sports network here. And what I do is I, I help companies to bring us documentaries. So you have to go to the guy that brought that to me. I went, great. And sent him an email four weeks ago and nothing. Because in Canada, unlike the States, they just don't get back to you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it, things move at a snail's pace, seemingly. Um, yeah. I, I, there's been so many times over the, the years here that, uh, again, the fellow who has the option on this Langford book has uh, contacted me and told me about so and you know such and such a party that it's been presented to the reader over you know an, an actor and you know fairly big names at times and and you you get your hopes up that okay now we're finally getting somewhere maybe but you know n nothing's come to fruition yet so yeah we'll see yeah. it's frustrating it, it almost gives you a sense i don't know if it's fair to say of langford and what he went through in his time because he must have been told a million times you're going to get your shot right this time it's yeah. happened, and then it just never happened yeah i think that you know when he honestly felt that it it was over for good that yeah, that was never going to happen was clearly when jess willard uh the white contender defeated jack johnson in 1915. Yeah. you know at that point he you know he says he flat out decided that that was it there was there was no way that a black man was going to get a chance to fight for the title again anytime soon and, and that he quit any serious training um, and, and he was right, honestly, because what it was, it wasn't until 1937, right. That, that Joe Lewis, uh, became the first man to get a chance to fight for the title. Yeah. Jack Johnson was lucky. He wasn't killed by Jack Blackburn. Black, <laughs> Blackburn who trained Lewis hated Jack Johnson and right. Blackburn had killed a person before. And he had a terrible temper. And as a lightweight, uh, I mean, as you know, the, the weight divisions weren't enforced, so he'd fight heavyweights. Yeah, I always thought Blackburn would make a great subject for a book as well. No he one's would. written a book about him. Yeah, that, that's right. And he, there's snippets of information about him, but he, he was, um, the story about him was he was in a, Jack Johnson called him, he was in prison in Philly. And he said, I need three grand to get out to pay the bail. And Blackburn paid it. And that was his payroll after 10, 12, 15 years of fighting. That was his savings. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah. And when when Blackburn was in prison, you know, three, four years later, he asked Johnson and Johnson said, no, said, but I gave you my life savings. Well, you're an idiot then. I didn't force you to. I just asked you. Yeah. And Blackburn, you know, the smoke was coming out of his ears. So there was a story. You've probably heard this at when Lewis was training and and uh, I don't know if it was for Schmeling, but it was the Pompton Lakes and Lewis came, uh, Johnson came up to the camp and he was telling him, you know, Blackburn's a loser and he can't do this. And he didn't realize Blackburn was like a father to Lewis. And, right. And, he was telling, and all of a sudden he heard the unmistakable click of, of, a, of a trigger being pulled. And he turned, he was about to turn and Blackburn just said, it's me, leave or die. And, and, and Lewis said he had no doubt that Blackburn would have blown his head off. Well, I've never heard that story, but of course, you know, we know that that uh, Blackburn did go to prison for murder. He so he right. was certainly capable. Right. And, you know, when they first brought Lewis to him, he wasn't going to take him because he said they'll never give another black guy a chance after what Jack Johnson. Done. Yeah, right. And it was a valid concern at the time, obviously. Yeah. And, and, and he said to him, Blackburn said, you know, I didn't really care about what he did 
sexually or, or with his wives, my argument was the way he screwed people over financially. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they just weren't, promoters weren't going to allow us to get a chance again, ever right. because of him. And so there was a lot of enmity amongst him. And, and I know Johnson got along with McVeigh. There's a story, I don't know if it's in your, I think it's in your book where uh, uh, Sam hands a, a key to Sam McVeigh. And it was for the ugliest fighter. What was, what was that about? Yeah, that was, I can't remember, you know, I haven't gone back and revisited that for so long, but yeah, basically it was that, uh, there was a key that somebody passed to some started this tradition of passing the, the, the ugliest man that, they, that they'd met. And, and, uh, and Sam got that key. And when he got to, when he got to, I think it was France where he met, uh, McVeigh for the first time. And he turned to his friend and say, hey, where's, where's that key? You know, he's finally found some guy to give pass it to. He thought, he thought McVeigh was the ugliest man they'd ever seen. <laughs> a lot of people said that about McVeigh. I don't think it was fair, but it's funny. No. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. <laughs> and McVeigh was in the corner of Johnson when he fought um, Jeffries. He yeah, I think actually McVeigh and, and uh, Johnson uh, developed a friendlier relationship, obviously, than Johnson did with either Joe Jeanette or Sam Langford. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know why, but those those two seem to hit it off to some degree. Well, you know, the interesting thing in reading about uh, Sam is that he was trained by George Budge Byers. And yeah, I almost brought that up when you raised the name of Byers. Um, yeah. yeah, Langford credits George Byers, who was I believe was the lightweight, uh, with um, right. you know at one point Byers told really, me really. he needed to. Uh, he needed to learn how to hit, you know, with power and, uh, and buyers, he credits buyers with teaching him how to, how to set on his punches and get his body into it. And so, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it sounds like, and Gans, when he fought Gans and defeated him to, you know, in a big surprise, uh, in 1903, uh, Gans met with Sam and showed him a few things as well. But I think more than anybody, he credits buyers with, um, showing him how to hit with power. Well, the story. I, I read was that they're, they're at a bar after and Gans was full of himself and, and, uh, and buyer said, why are you so full of yourself? And he said, well, I beat Joe Gans. He said, you didn't really beat him. He said, you won the fight because he fought a 20 round fight last week. Right. And he's exhausted. You didn't, if he'd been rested, you wouldn't have had a chance. Yeah. But I hit him and I hit, you, you did you know what you were doing in there what do you mean? <laughs> well you know if you think about it sam had only when he fought when he fought uh gans for that title you know sam had only been a professional for a, a year or a little over a year because he mm -hmm. didn't turn professional himself until 1902 so see so yeah he was very raw at the time he fought so it was it was a very big surprise that he beat gans on that particular occasion but like you say gans supposedly that story is that he had a long fight in a long train ride and and supposedly they were playing cards and yeah, i don't think he had much concern uh, or worry over having to face langford at the time this young man but um yeah they obviously never fought again either um no it's interesting because gans as you said and buyers were teaching him things in the bar right but what really struck me clay was the fact that langford didn't say oh forget it you just won't give me credit he actually went oh okay i understand you're right I mean, he was willing to accept it and learn. 
Yeah, he clearly was. He was he was thankful for the input and advice that he received and, and acted upon it. The, the, the most touching thing I read in your book that, that brought me to tears was when I think it was in England where he stepped off the curb when a white man was walking towards him. Right. He was, he was so used to what was the story of that? Yeah, the story was when he arrived in England in 1907. You know, this couple of sports writers were sent to the boat to meet him and uh, bring him over to the club. And uh, when they were walking along, you know, Sam was drawing a lot of attention because he he had some really loud checkered suit outfit on. But but when he would see um, men approaching from the opposite direction, white men approaching from the opposite direction, the sports writers noticed that he immediately stepped off the curb out into the street until they passed him. And he did that a couple of times and they asked him what he was doing. And, you know, he he's they told him you don't have to do that and he and he was very surprised because well you know he said well back back where i come from we're not allowed to walk with white folk you know so yeah what a commentary huh yeah that that just i mean it chokes me up today the right treat, the treat to do that to another human being especially well, you know, even four years later he was when he went over there to fight um I think it was Bill Lang, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he, the National Sporting Club invited him to a dinner, to attend a dinner with the press. You know, or they're just you know trying to drum up uh, press for the uh, upcoming fight. You know, and Sam declined the invitation. You know, and he he just basically said that uh, he wouldn't be comfortable there as the only black party amongst all those white folk, and that uh, you know he and, he and he said he knew his place. You know, so, yeah, you know, and, and that was the same fight, of course, that, uh, you know, there were many, the majority of the, of the crowd wanted, were rooting for Lang, the white man. And, um, you know, they, they brought out the white gloves. They didn't have, they didn't have black gloves for the fight. They put, they, they, they fitted the fighters with white gloves. And the idea was that the, that the white gloves were going to show up more effectively against the black skin. Yeah. That's <laughs> on the cover of the book. Right, that's the fight. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yep. Remarkable fighter. And you also had that great story in the book that made me smile. It makes you want to shout out in happiness. The one where they said we appoint the referee. Oh yeah, he again when he first went to the National Sporting Club in 1907, they were talking about the fight and uh, you know they they were going to need to select a referee, and Sam said, "All right." I brought my own referee. And of course they were incredulous. What do you mean you brought your own referee? That's not allowed. And then Sam said, held it his right fist and said, well, here it is right here. This is my referee. The one that gives the right decision every time. <laughs> How can you not love a man like that? I mean, yeah, no, man, he had a great sense of humor, very witty. I mean, he was, he was a sports writer's dream in terms of interviews, very quotable. Yeah. And a very bright man. I mean, a very smart man and it just you know someone should have looked after him when his when the career was over rather than let him drift i mean when he retired what happened right. with his wife and and his daughter i mean he did he divorce his wife or did she divorce him she divorced him um i you know i don't know exactly what was going on with them i know for, for one, one reason of course was that he kept fighting long after she wanted him to quit and, um, you know, in fact, went blind in one eye and, you know, and he, and he started drinking quite a bit towards the end of his, his boxing career. Um, you know, she, Tom Simon traveled to 
Australia or England or France gone for months and months at a time. Um, you know, they just, uh, I guess they drifted apart and, um, yeah, she divorced him and, uh, you know, but later in life when he was, his great granddaughter remembers Sam coming over to her mother's house, his granddaughter or his, his daughter's house. And, uh, you know, Sam would come for a visit. There'd it'd be a big to do everybody who knew who Sam Langford was in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, his, his wife would be there, you know, they'd, they, they were cordial to each other and she had many great memories of their times together and the time they spent the year and a half they spent as a family together over in Australia. So, you know, so they had a little bit of a uh, reconnection at some point, but they never again lived together. You know, of course he, he ended his life in a private nursing home, you know, about six other patients in a house or so forth. And, uh, um, but you know, he stayed in touch with his family and there was some, there was that relationship still. And, and Dempsey, uh, admitted that the only fighter he was afraid of was Sam Langford. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you get the, of course the Dempsey fans don't want to hear that today and say, ah, he was just being kind and so forth. But, but again, Gunboat Smith who fought both of them said Sam would have defeated him easily. And I think, uh, you know, Dempsey, when he had an opportunity to fight him, he was 21 years old. And yeah, he said he was the only man he ever really feared was Sam Langford because he knew he would flatten him. Yeah. And this was John the Barber Riesling didn't care about him as man, erstwhile manager right. at that time in New York. And yeah. And at that particular time, you, I'm sure he probably would have flattened him because, you know, yeah. Dempsey was not that experienced as a, uh, as he became later, of course. And, um, but, you know, what the same thing is, you know, Sam was. <laughs> Sam was blind in one eye at the time, though, too, but but he was still very dangerous. You know what's really remarkable to me, Lou, is the fact that guys like Sam Langford and uh, Harry Greb, possibly the two greatest fighters in, in history, both had over 300 professional fights recorded and both fought the last third of those blind in one eye. Uh, unbelievable. It's remarkable. Yeah, it's more than remarkable. It, it's unfathomable. I mean... Two eyes. Right. <laughs> still a dangerous sport, even if you're all-time elite like they were. But one eye, I mean, it, 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 your balance is off. You can't see shots coming. Well, and of course, the, in, the, in the end, when Sam won that heavyweight title in Mexico, you know, at the end of his career, he could hardly see out the other eye. They yeah. were, and he, his, his handlers were concerned for him because he, he couldn't see anything. And he... And they, they said, yeah, he said, don't worry. You don't have to worry about old, old Sammy. I don't need to see him. I just got to feel him. So he'd, he'd get out there barely able to see, and he somehow managed to get him maneuvered into a corner where, like, where he could feel him, deliver an uppercut and knock the guy out for, and win the heavyweight championship of Mexico. One, one of the last arguments I ever got into, that's a wonderful story. Uh, someone mentioned how they thought Fred Fulton was a better fighter than Langford, which I thought was hysterical. Well, he said he knocked Langford out, but Langford was legally blind. Well, and Fulton's the one who actually um, blinded him permanently in the one eye because Sam suffered a detached retina uh, in that fight. Yeah, and Fulton obviously was a very large six foot four. I don't know how much he weighed at the time, well over 200 pounds. You know, and yet this five foot six, six seven inch fighter overweight out of condition he was nearing he was getting towards the latter part of his career and that was at a time when past when willard won the title and he wasn't training seriously anymore but 
you know, when he was motivated, he remained dangerous. I mean, in 1922, he, he defeated, knocked out uh, Tiger Flowers, mm-hmm. <laughs> who would become go on to become the middleweight champion of the world. You know, that's five years after he lost the sight in, in his left eye. And um, it's only a few years away from the end of his career. He's not, he was still good. He was, he was still good enough to get this guy in a position where he could deliver the knockout blow. He had knockout power with both hands. Did was the sight fully restored in both eyes after the surgery? Yeah, you know, briefly. Uh, I guess that you know, in the late twenties, he had that surgery where he he was briefly able to see out of both eyes again, but it didn't last uh, very long at all. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. He reached, you know, by the, in the late twenties and thirties, I mean, he was really getting by mostly from handouts. He would get paid here and there to, you know, in a bar to tell his old stories. And then in the summer, <laughs> well, he would go up to the Eastern provinces of Canada and perform in tent shows with uh, parties like Joe Walcott and put on these boxing exhibitions again, where he's basically can't see very fat and out of shape, but uh, you know, he'd make some money during the summers in that manner. Wow. It'd be great if there, if there were articles around or photos around from that era. Well, I've seen, I've seen some, um, you know, n- not very many, but I, I remember seeing a, uh, one particular picture of him, um, in the ring. Of course I have one with, with him standing in a ring with, uh, Joe Walcott where they're that, uh, yeah. both overweight, of course, but yeah, I'm sure there's a few articles, but you, you probably have to, if you dug, around to some of the newspapers of those days uh, in microfilm. If that's an option for you in Canada, I would imagine mm. you could come across them. Be a lot of work. Yes. I mean, I know that the Toronto Reference Library has has the newspapers here going back a long time. So I, right. I, I was able to find things. When, when I was researching um, George Budge Byers and George Godfrey, the local Prince Edward Island newspapers were publishing stuff uh, on the Crimean War, so I mean that's how far it went back. Some yeah. news, some newspapers around the country, like in Toronto, for instance, um, they would print boxing articles, but sometimes it would almost be in code because it wasn't legal. So <laughs> they'd have to tell you it was an exhibition or this is what happened, and and then there've been fights where there was a famous story in Toronto. There was a fighter named Little Arthur King, who was a lightweight, and he was doing really well. He won the Commonwealth welterweight title, lightweight title, Canadian lightweight champ. He was a really great African-Canadian fighter, and his manager was a guy named Davey Yak. Davey Yak's brother was Baby Yak, who's well-known in Canada because he didn't go to the Nazi Olympics. He went to the other Olympics but had to turn back because of the war. And his best friend was Sammy Lovespring, who became much more famous. Mm. And so Daviak was his manager, but also a mobster in his own right. So he went down to New York with Arthur King to get him some management so he could get a shot at Ike Williams. And the story he told was he's in the hotel, they're sharing a hotel room, him and Arthur in New York, and they're not there five minutes. And he's knocking the door, he goes, just a sec, opens it, and he's greeted with a gun from Blinky Palermo. And Palermo looks at him and says, get out, the fighter belongs to us. And he turned to get his bags and he, the guy, no, no, get out, forget the bags. And Davey Yak at least said, if you think you're the first guy to point a gun at me today, you're sadly mistaken. And 
Plyermore apparently said, either way, he either get out or die. And so he left. And I got to meet Arthur King in the 80s briefly. And I asked him about working for Plyermore. He said, I can't talk about it. Huh. And I said, really? I mean, it was that bad. He said, I, 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 he said I, 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 if I'm not being polite, please tell me. And he was super polite. He said, what they did to me, if someone mentions it, I'll just go down there now and get a gun and kill them all. You know, they took everything from me. Yeah. And, and he was rated above Ike Williams by Ring Magazine. They wouldn't let him fight. And he said, of course, Ike was a good friend of mine. He ended up more broke than I did. And he got free because the promoter in Toronto, Frank Tunney, who was related to Gene Tunney, he paid Palermo half a million for the rights to release him. Arthur King from his contract allow him to come home to Toronto from New York. So what these guys went through, you know, through the right. mob, and in particular, the black fighters went through, uh, it, it's it, the amount of money the mob stole. It's, it's like when people would say to Angelo, you know, was boxing better when the mob used to control it? He would say, what do you mean used to? <laughs> yeah. He said they've never left. They're still around. But he said people think it was better for who? Not for Ike Williams, not for Sam Langford, not for Jack Johnson. Right. You know, not for hundreds of other black fighters who, who were the best athletes ever to have lived and ended up with no money at the end of their life. Yeah. But, you know, despite that, you, you know, from the end of the book, I mean, Langford, he he was very positive. I mean, the, the yeah. guy, he ends up he ends up blind and penniless, basically living in a private nursing home. And, um, you know, his, his attitude was he had a couple of visitors and they would he would tell him that, hey, he ain't nobody need to feel sorry for old Sam. I had over maybe 600 fights i've been all got to travel all over the world see everything there is to see eat everything there is to eat he he, he thought he had a great life <laughs> and he, he did i mean he was recognized in his time as the best fighter on earth right i mean how much better can you be at your profession than that you know? i guess you know you can kind of equate it to muhammad ali right i mean right how he spent the last part of his life with his Parkinson's and the condition, neurologic condition. And he was the most famous man on earth, basically. And still is. And Thomas Hauser's asked me, not asked me, but told me one time, he said, you know, for someone like Muhammad who just barely passed high school in the fifties, what are his job opportunities? What are his chances? What are Langford's chances without boxing, given the vicious, vile racism of the time? You know, right. He wasn't allowed to go to school. And yeah, he understood that. I'm sure, just like Ali did. Yeah, and so it, and Hauser said, if you would have said to Ali, "Here's the deal: you'll get to be the most famous person on the face of the earth ever, but the result is you'll have a neurological disease." He said, "Of course, he would have taken the deal. I mean, who who would give up a deal like that?" Langford, as you know, because of his father, you know, had to work from a young age. His father used to beat him, and there were so few schools for African Canadians back then. And even though there were few schools, African, all Canadians, you were expected to work. School was a luxury back then. Right. You know, it's not like with our children where, no, you have to go to school. So, I mean, define boxing and then become 2023 and we're still talking about Langford. And, and thanks to you, 
they will be forever because you brought them back to life. You well, know, I, I, I tell you, Lou, Lou, before we uh, wrap up, I wanted to make sure that we, you know, we promote this uh, Canadian broadcasting yes, uh, series please. that's coming up because um, I mean, I'm thrilled that they're, they're going to do this uh, sports episode. They have eight episodes, one of them sports related, and they decided that uh, Sam Lankford was going to be the feature of that sports episode. So, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. I love the fact that he's going to get that and receive that kind of recognition. And so many folks who don't know about him at all, who watch that episode and that series will get to get to learn about him. And uh, hopefully it'll renew interest in him. And, um, there will be more to come. I, I'm sure there will. And I, I'm telling you right now, when CBC airs stuff like that, they get millions and millions and millions of viewers. And there isn't an athlete in the history of this country that would be on it, who you could put on other than Sam Langford. Yeah, maybe instead of uh, two book sales in a month, I get four or five one month or something. I think you'll get a lot more than that because <laughs> it has to be made into a movie in our lifetimes. It wouldn't be fair to Sam and 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 to you if it wasn't his story is so remarkable and you told it so beautifully you brought him to life which is why it was sad for me when the book ended i didn't want it to end i i still wanted to be with sam but the cbc what are the dates when the cbc uh, well from what i yeah again from what i've heard uh i don't have the specific times or anything but it sounds like the plan is that they will be aired on the 18th and 25th of uh, of this month okay that's fantastic uh, yeah, if I get more specific information uh, or as I get it, I'll, I'll I'll forward that to you. Thank you, and I'll 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 promo it every day. Yeah, and if you hear, let me know. You might hear before I do. Yeah, I got to figure out how I can watch it or pick it up from from here in the states. Um, uh, if you can't, I'll get a copy of it for you because I have friends at the CBC. Yeah, that'd be great. Just send you a copy of it, but it's something that I mean, it'll be played everywhere. And it, it I, I can't wait. I mean, I wish it was now. Yeah. I wish yeah. I could sit down with you now in a room with a beer and then turn it on and watch it. I'm sure it's fantastic. And the fact that you're on it, I mean, you're. Well, I, I mean, I was up there and interviewed over three hours. Now, I don't know. Wow. How, maybe, I don't know if I'll even appear, but yeah, maybe briefly. We'll see. Yeah, but you, you speak so well, but also you, you're the Sam, you're the guy. When it comes to Sam Langford, there isn't anyone else. It's you, so you have to be the guy. And it's great that this that the CBC knew that that somebody there was smart enough to say, if you're going to do something on Sam Langford, you got to get Clay Moyle because he wrote not the not a book, he wrote the book on Langford. You know? Yeah, I was only sorry when I went all the way to Nova Scotia that I didn't uh, have more time to go over to Weymouth and spend some time in Weymouth where Sam was born and and initially raised uh that's a missed opportunity that's a long way to go and not not go that little bit further and right. make it to his hometown my i i've been to weymouth several times um when i was doing stand-up you you remind me of a story of my father's second honeymoon uh he was less than 40 minutes from independence missouri and his hero was harry truman and Truman was at his library and he didn't go. Oh. <laughs> so I gotta get home to the kids. This was his second. You know, yeah, you gotta you gotta take those opportunities when they arise. Huh? <laughs> he always regretted it because he he just adored Truman. Yeah. You know, that's too bad. 
yeah. But uh, have you been in touch with Langford's family at all? Uh, well, of course, I, I talked to Carol Doyle, his great granddaughter, every once in a while. She, you know, she was kind enough at the very end of my efforts to write the book to uh, speak with me and provide me with some additional information. Um, That's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, we, we touch base periodically. Um, and, uh, you know, I try to keep her in the loop if any hopeful information. Uh, I've sent her and her family a few things that I had memorabilia-wise related to Sam recently. But, uh, yeah, we, we stay in touch. That's wonderful. So people can buy the book on Amazon? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, you know, abebooks.com, you might be able to find a copy there, of course. But uh, yeah, Amazon, I think it's on the Barnes & Noble site. I'm not positive about that. But, but yeah, you can find it's also listed up here in, in the chain store here, Chapters Indigo, and it's on their site. So you can go to that site and order it. And I recommend you buy this book. For everyone, people always say, well, buy it for your father for Father's Day. Buy it for yourself and know that if you lend it out, you won't get it back. <laughs> um, this, is, this is such a, yeah, I don't want to get emotional, but it's such a wonderful book by a wonderful person. Langford is the greatest fighter, you know, that, I mean, he's considered by so many historians, including Clay, you know, to be the greatest boxing, the greatest boxer that ever lived, title or no title. And there wasn't anyone who ever willingly got into the ring with him. You know, he scared the hell out of everyone. His talent was supreme. He had the timing of a comic. He was a fantastic human being, much like Clay. And I just want to say thank you, Clay, for being here. And um, I look forward to speaking with you and seeing you again soon. Yeah, let's do it again soon, Lou. It's been too long. Uh, enjoy the time with you. Yes, next time we'll do Billy Miski. All right, I'm up for it. Okay, thank you so much, buddy. All right. Take care. You too. Be well. Thank you. Okay.